everyone. This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Dudley Lamming from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who recently joined us for the fifth webinar in the Science of Aging series, a joint webinar series brought to you by Inside Scientific and the American Physiological Society. Dudley's presentation gave an overview of recent and ongoing research into how quality, quantity, and timing of what we eat affects metabolic health, frailty, and longevity. Let's dive in. Someone has asked, what time of the day did you conduct the GTT and ITT? We actually conducted the, the, IT, the GTTs and ITTs for, well, so for our branched amino acid and protein restriction experiments, primarily in the morning after an overnight fast. For our calorie-restricted experiments, we tried to a couple different ways to sync up the feeding parameters, since all of the mice are different regimens. It's a little bit tricky to do that. Usually we did it after an overnight fast, but sometimes we also did it after refeeding so that the mice all ate at approximately the same time. It doesn't really matter, as it turns out, whether you do it for the calorie restriction experiments in the morning or, or later in the day. You get pretty much the same set of results. Okay, great. Got another question here regarding fuel oxidation. How can you stimulate amino acid oxidation? That's an interesting question. So branched amino acid oxidation can be stimulated via a drug called BT2 that essentially inhibits an inhibitory kinase. So by inhibiting that inhibitor, you stimulate BCAA catabolism. All of the various different amino acids, for the most part, have different catabolic pathways. And so for each type of amino acid, you might need one or, or might need to modulate one or a number of different pathways. I don't think there's a general way of stimulating amino acid or protein catabolism, but there, there could be. I'm just not aware of it. Great. We've got another question here. We'll comment in question. I was surprised to see that the calorie-restricted group, which was fed once per day, didn't enter torpor. Do you know why that is? Yeah, so so mice typically don't enter torpor, which is essentially a state where they're sort of huddling in the corner and shivering when they're calorie restricted. And so they, they sort of adapt and we step down the calorie restriction by about 10% per week to give them that time to adapt. So they don't really have, have a torpor-like response. Now, longer periods of time without food, of course, you will eventually enter torpor. But calorie restriction, as is traditionally done with once-a-day feeding and sort of giving the mice a chance to adjust just, they don't, they don't do that. Okay, great. The next question here, does class, classic calorie restriction improve cognition in the aging brain? And can calorie restriction reduce the incidence of Alzheimer's disease? Oh, that's a very interesting question. So certainly there's some evidence that calorie restriction in mouse models of Alzheimer's disease, and there are many different models of the disease, does have some positive effects with respect to the development of plaques and tangles and loss of cognition in mouse models of AD. And I believe there's some evidence now that in rhesus macaques, there's some inhibition of normal Alzheimer's slash dementia as well. So one thing that we did do, and I think I didn't show in our calorie restriction experiments, we did some cognitive testing on the mice. And we found that indeed we saw preservation of cognition and improved learning behavior in mice that were fed once a day on a CR diet and not mice fed the diluted diet where calories are restricted, but they don't have that fasting period. So that's a great question. 
Awesome. We've got another one here. This question is, have you looked at markers of oxidative stress in calorie restriction for fasted mice? And if so, what role do changes in reactive oxygen species have on glucose tolerance or insulin sensitivity? So that's a, that's a really interesting one too. So the the first thing to to point out is that there's definitely you know an evolving recognition in the aging field that the the ROS theory of aging that reactive oxygen species you know accelerate aging and DNA damage and the hallmarks of aging is definitely incomplete. And so Michael Ristow's work on mitohormesis has shown that calorie restriction does in in, does in fact induce a little bit of oxidative stress in multiple species. Um, and at least in worms, that oxidation stress is required for the effects of CR on lifespan. So the model there is that by inducing this low level of oxidative stress, you induce sort of a hormetic protective response against many different types of stresses. Now, certainly, there, you know, mouse models that have high levels of oxidative stress typically have shorter lifespans or develop various diseases. So we haven't looked in this particular set of mice, but I would expect that both in cow-restricted mice and fasting mice, there might actually be a little bit of an induction of oxidative stress, or at least an induction of oxidative stress response genes that, that uh, help detoxify. But we haven't really looked at that, and that's something that we could definitely look into in the future. Yeah, that's great. All right. There is another question here. With a low-protein diet, were there any changes noted in the autophagy in muscle, islets, or hepatocytes? We didn't notice changes in autophagy, but in our mice where we did our lifespan studies and did transcriptional profile in the muscle, we definitely observed decreased mTOR activity in the muscle as well as adipose tissue. And you would normally expect that would be associated with increased um, autophagy. So um, we saw changes in, in ULK phosphorylation, but we didn't look um, at autophagy markers per se. But you certainly you would expect that there might be more autophagy. And, and typically speaking, quote unquote, younger mice actually have more autophagy anyway. There's sort of an age-dependent decline in autophagy. And we'd expect that the anti-aging interventions, if they extend lifespan, probably delay that as well. But we haven't looked, and that would be something really interesting to look into in the future. Okay, great. The next question here is, have you tested the influence of temperature on the metabolic effects of isoleucine? Oh, yes. So that's, that's an interesting one. So one of the questions that we got a lot from people when we started looking into isoleucine restriction was whether or not this would still work at thermoneutrality. So mice that are housed at room temperature essentially are not at thermoneutral. They need to expend some amount of energy to keep their bodies warm. And that's similar to humans too. For the most part, humans don't live in a thermoneutral environment. We live in an environment where we have to expend at least some energy or add clothing and so on in order to regulate our body temperature correctly. So we place the mice at thermoneutrality. And basically, although all mice at thermoneutrality, including ours, eat less because they don't have to spend as much energy keeping each other warm, all the metabolic effects, the improved glucose tolerance, the improved insulin sensitivity, the changes in energy expenditure, as far as we could tell, all of those were still preserved at thermoneutrality. So this seems not to be an effect that's modulated by body temperature for the most part. Okay, great. This question is actually directly for you, Dudley. How has this research changed your own eating patterns? 
Oh, that's an interesting one. So definitely I've sort of been more interested in thinking about the isoleucine content or, or and content of amino acids in general and food. It hasn't changed my eating habits that much. As a vegetarian, I already consume probably a little bit less protein than the average person. Awesome. Okay. This question here is, how is the effect of isoleucine um, decrease fat in body composition? How is it mediated? I mean, that's an interesting question. So, you know, we think that FGF21, which is this key energy balance hormone, definitely has some role in, in, in the mechanisms of this effect. But there's definitely a large number of effects that are FGF21 independent. And things that we are looking into is trying to understand that. And so, you know, there, there's hundreds of genes that change in the liver when we restrict isoleucine. Many genes, almost thousand or so, that change in skeletal muscle when we restrict branched amino acids. And so there's lots of different pathways that are being engaged, and we're trying to figure out what the role of mTOR may be, what the role of FDF21 may be, and what other new pathways might be being engaged. So that's something we really expect to be looking into pretty heavily over the next few years. Great. Another question here. Why did you decide to feed the mice at the beginning of the light phase since they normally eat during the dark phase? There's sort of two reasons for that. So one is feeding the mice at the beginning of life stage is very well known to work in terms of extending lifespan and is widely utilized. So the NIA's aging colony that, that makes aged calorie-restricted mice available to investigators is feeds at the beginning of the life cycle, and that's sort of a standard technique there. But more, more broadly, when we want to think about how to line up different feeding regimens, so mice that are fed ad libitum essentially eat their last meal right before the lights turn on. And so if we feed the CR mice right when the lights turn on and then wait a few hours, all of those mice, the ones that have eaten the ad libitum overnight, as well as the CR-fed mice, are essentially synchronized in terms of their feeding pattern. And so that gives us another advantage to that technique. Okay, fantastic. How would endurance exercise for glycogen depletion affect the fasting versus ad, lib ad libitum eating models? Well, I'll, ju I'll just say overall, there's a lot about the interaction of our studies with exercise that we don't understand yet. So, you know, dietary protein overall is pretty heavily consumed by athletes and without any particularly obvious uh, detrimental effects. And so for the most part, we think that exercise is probably going to be protective against the effects of excess dietary protein, maybe against isoleucine as well. Trying to figure out exactly how to incorporate those types of exercise studies into our, into our diet paradigms in a, in a thoughtful way is something that we've been thinking about for a while. And I think the same thing could be uh, true with calorie restriction. And I think it's important because most of the, you know, very few people overall do CR, but most of the people who are on calorie restricted diets are also very interested in exercise. So that doesn't directly address glycogen, but I think overall this entire interaction between diet and exercise is something that, that needs a lot more study. And I think it's, it's quite interesting. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe. 